was actually thinking it'd be, I mean, this interview feels a little different than uh, some of the other ones I've done because, well, I know you better than a lot of the other guests. Yeah, and yeah. well, I'm staying with you to work on a project and we've been talking basically about the stuff, kind of stuff we would like talk about in these interviews for like a day. Yeah, right. So anyway, I can introduce you here. So hi, everyone. This is Michael Cox. I'm here um, in the house, actually, of Chris Anderson, a professor of political science at the University of Colorado Boulder, and also the director of the Center for the Governance of Natural Resources, which is housed within the Institute for Behavioral Science at the university. So actually, Chris, Jared, you know, we've been talking about um, a lot of different themes over the last year. I'm staying with you here to work on a project funded by the uh, USDA. Something I've actually been avoiding asking you, kind of saving for now at the, be at the beginning of this interview, uh -oh. that I'd like to ask you just more directly is like kind of how do you see yourself having gotten to where you are? You know, so you've been here now at UC Boulder for 15 years before and you worked at the FAO. So you have some of that experience actually that a lot of academics don't have. I always have assumed that that, you know, gives you some perspectives that the rest of us don't necessarily have or it affects your work in some ways that maybe we can guess about. So if you don't mind, just like, you know, what is your origin story and, and the way that interests you to tell it? Well, make a long story short, it, it just sort of happened. I mean, it's, it's not like this was part of a grand design that I put right. together myself. You know, one thing leads to another. You might call it a series of unfortunate events. Yeah, <laughs> That's okay. Kind of movie title. Uh, no, it, rather uh, fortunate events. I hmm. mean, I really like where I'm at now and what I'm doing every day. I love uh, the challenge of working with graduate students, researchers, teaching. You know, I never saw myself as a teacher, really. Hmm. I mean, you mentioned that I worked for the UN and the, the FAO, and that was kind of my dream job when I was okay. in that situation. And But, you know, with with some, some uh, negative experiences as well, I, mean, I remember feeling a bit frustrated about not really having time to get to the bottom of things, like looking at evidence in support of policy advice that we would kind of you know, put out there right. to advise member governments or people interested. In this case, the community forestry was what we were trying to promote. And I remember, you know, it was a bit shallow in that sense. And I remember feeling a bit frustrated. You know, it would be good to have a bit more uh, on you in terms of evidence behind mm -hmm. the these uh, uh, policy briefs and the things that we were writing, mm -hmm. it, it was it was also quite satisfying because you were you met a lot of interesting people, decision makers who who wanted advice and help and uh, asked good questions and wanted to do good things. So you felt like you were in a position to make a difference. Right. But I also felt like if if I had more on my feet. I don't know if that expression exists in, in English. But I'm like, trying to interpret it. Like, no, like better better armed with evidence. Like, okay. having, like, like having more confidence in the policy advice. I remember we were talking a lot about, well, it's important with an inclusive part participatory process and everything. But we were, in all honesty, we were just kind of telling people what makes made sense to us and what we kind of had seen in the field and right. these projects we had been involved with. But it was not like systematic evidence. There was nothing wrong with what we said. Now, now there is evidence, right? Right. There's for been a lot more of research in this area. But anyway, so, you know, I, I got more and more interested in actually pursuing some of these questions that came up through the work at the UN. So, 
And could you say a bit more about that work? Like, it was, yeah. looks like, sounds like you went to different places, you're working with different projects, were you kind of on the ground, kind of trying to make these things happen? Or Yeah, so I was very lucky to end up in a unit where I had a wonderful boss, uh, Marilyn Hoskins, at okay. the Food and Agriculture Organization. And, and she basically started FAO's program on community forestry. I mean, she was hired okay. to start that program. It didn't exist before the 80s. I think this was mid-80s she was hired to, to create this program. I came on board maybe 10 years after and had already grown, attracted donor funding. It was one of the biggest forestry programs of the FAO at the time, it was a, kind of a global action program to promote the idea of uh, reducing poverty through the devolution of property rights and empowering mm -hmm. local communities to mm -hmm. manage forests, often as common property. So managing forests as common property was actually the title of one of our publications. Right. And so through that work, uh, I came in contact with Lynn Ostrom. Mm -hmm. And the, the stuff that we did there was exactly to kind of get more evidence behind the policy advice on what, what actually works in terms of policies to support local communities in managing their forests? Mm -hmm. You know, FAO is a technical agency, so they know all about how to grow a tree in all sorts of climates, what species, okay. you know, what kind of care to give to it. So all the technical biophysical bits, they're, they're a center of excellence for that stuff. Mm -hmm. But what's, what's all uh, often missing is not that technical knowledge. I mean, that's useful, right? But local people often also know those things, how to grow, make things grow, et cetera. So the biggest... Where they live, et cetera. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So the, the constraints are often social or economic or of, of a different character. And FAO didn't necessarily at the time have that expertise, right? So this is something that Marilyn Hoskins and her group at FAO really uh, tried to develop, bringing in leading experts in different fields and... Uh, I remember Marilyn telling me how uh, she connected with Lynn Ostrom because she had read Governing the Commons, her famous book. And while it was mostly about irrigation, that research approach of systematically observing through careful case studies mm -hmm. uh, around the world on how local people managed to overcome really difficult collective action problems. How, and, and so she said, oh, that's the kind of database of carefully developed case studies, but not on irrigation, but on forestry, like local forest management, local forest governance, experiences all around the world, failures, successes, whatever. So we can start to try to tease out what are some of the keys to success, mm -hmm. the reason some communities do better than others. What's the role of property rights? What's the role of leadership? What's the role of these decision-making arrangements, the governance process, mm -hmm. you know, all these things, you know, we, we kind of have an intuitive feel for what probably works because, you know, from our own experience in, in these rich countries, right. we, you know, we, we think we know, right, based right. on those experiences and other projects. But to be frank, we really don't know until we look at the data and, and analyze these things systematically. And at the time, there weren't any systematic quantitative studies about forestry specifically about forestry specifically okay yeah there were a lot of case studies that's basically right. the and not to say that they're not useful but they're often not enough right to especially for policy because one of the things about policy is like 
it's hard to decide what kind of inputs are needed on a case-by-case basis. I mean, that's just not how most governments operate. They, they need policy instruments. Mm-hmm. And it's fine to have a few different instruments that you perhaps can let the communities or user groups choose from, which applies to them, right. their specific situation. But it's not like you can have a thousand different instruments for a particular area. Right. You need, you know, a few that are uh, generally useful, right? Yeah. So the, the generalizability really does matter for public policy, I think. And I think that was the appeal of doing, creating a careful database. So we commissioned a study by Lynn Ostrom and Clark Gibson and some of the colleagues at Indiana University who had been working on the irrigation stuff mm-hmm. but were interested in forestry. And I remember Lynn uh, telling me about those first meetings, how she just kind of naively said, yeah, sure, we'll just replace the water with trees. No right. problem. Keyword search and just, yeah. <laughs> Find and replace. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> and, I mean, I, of course you knew it, was, it wouldn't be that easy. She was smarter than that. But right. they uh, they took on the challenge and wrote a, a brilliant working paper kind of laying out the rationale for why this was needed and what it could do, what kind of questions it would allow us to explain. A lot of talk about what are the, the causes of deforestation. You right. know, uh, at the time, there wasn't a whole lot of work on that. And there were a lot of misconceptions such as well, uh, poor communities, they're poor and therefore they just cut down the forest, you know, or they're not educated and they don't know the value of the forest. Or, right. You know, just s- simplistic explanations like that that were, you know, kind of part of the conventional wisdom in many cases. Right. So to be able to get to the bottom of, and the more nuanced understanding of those factors, that was really an important rationale for this new research program. So that was exciting to be part of, you know, it was, and and now, you know, firmly in the policy field, right. In FAO where the, my main role was to um, interact with public officials in developing countries around community forestry issues, provide technical support. And in this case, you know, social science, technical support, policy advice. But now also with the beginning of a really interesting scientific project to support that role as a policy advisor. Right. So you got involved. Did you get involved in the beginnings of IFRI while you were still at FAO then? Yes. Okay. Uh, so that was one of the, the projects. So IFRI was a project within that community forestry. Got it. So within this FAO new group. funded. We got some money, I believe, from the Swedish government, the Norwegian government. Okay. Uh, that we then um, hired Lynn and Clark as consultants or uh, Indiana, through Indiana University yeah. to do a, a feasibility study, and a kind of a proposal. This is what a database could look like. And then we created three pilot sites, uh, one in Uganda, one in Nepal, and one in Bolivia, hmm. where we kind of field tested this initial data collection protocol that later became IFRI the right. International Forestry Resources and Institutions Research Program. Yeah. Uh, and so after a couple of years, so I was kind of uh, doing follow-up work with Lynn and Clark and with the, the people in the field. Okay. Um, 
So this was yeah. what, like mid or early nineties? It was mid nineties. Mid nineties. Yeah. Okay. So I worked for FBO from nineteen ninety five to nineteen ninety eight. Okay. Uh, so through through that experience, um, yeah, of course, really started to see what researchers do. And sure. Right. The the, the exciting uh, process of discovery. Yeah. Like, I didn't even know when when people would ask me. So, what are the causes of deforestation, or what what are the causes of community success in governing a common pool resource like a forest or you know groundwater commons? What, what are the factors when people? I I wouldn't at the time. I didn't know what was involved in the research to be able to answer those questions. Right. What would you need to be able to do to actually generate the knowledge so you could really answer that yeah. rigorously? Yeah. And I think at the time, if somebody had asked me, and I, you know, I don't remember what I was thinking at the time, but I bet I would say something, oh, we'd have to go out and talk, interview people, and uh, we'd have to like uh, study their history and you know, do a, a, an in-depth case study. Of, right. of particular cases and then maybe over time collect more and more cases and for every case you learn something new and you just keep on like building within yourself right. a knowledge base I mean there's some good logic and intuition there yeah I, mean, yeah, I think but, but I, I think I, I didn't know how social science researchers really worked when it came to research and right. you know, the principles <clears throat> of scientific inquiry mm-hmm. what makes for good evidence and not so good evidence and, right so that's that's and I started discovering that through my interactions with Lynn in particular. Okay, and uh, I remember her being so generous. I mean, she back then, late nineties. She she was I mean she was the president of the APSA, right? But I didn't know what that was. Or I American mean, she Political was, Science Association yeah, yeah. for people who don't. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yes, the American Political Science Association. And she was already a big name, and it was five years after governing the Commons. It was a big deal. She had already had an offer for an endowed chair at Harvard. She had turned turned it down, stayed in Indiana. So I knew she was, you know, a, a big deal, so to speak. Right. Yeah. And I I was just not used to interacting with a person of that caliber, that brilliant and hmm. successful, but with such a big heart, so generous with her time. I, I, I couldn't, I didn't get it. Like I was just puzzled by it. You know, I'd, I'd call and she'd stay, she'd be on the phone for like an hour. Wow. Yeah. And I was this, you know, junior professional at FAO. And of course, yeah, I had, I thought, oh, maybe she's interested in, in the money of FAO or like there was some benefit to this. But I think, no, I don't think that was it at all. She was just, uh, she was able to connect and be able to see somehow what, uh, you know, a person needed or would benefit from and yeah. was willing to put in that time with other people. And, I saw, and that was just inspiring to me. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Early on. So that really made an impression. So then, you know, after a few years at FAO, I had a temporary position. So I knew that after four years... I would either have to get another position or, you know, it would, I wouldn't be able to continue 
that position forever. And is that common or is it kind of... Yeah, so it's part of this junior professional program. So it's funded by donor governments, in my case, Sweden, okay. paid for my position, but I was hired uh, by FAO. So it comes with a four-year maximum. Okay. But then, yeah, often you can stay on in a different, apply for different positions. Right. You kind of have a foot in the door. But I, I decided to pursue a, a doctorate in public policy. And partly, or mostly, I'd say, because of these interactions with Lynn Ostrom and, and, and colleagues at Indiana. And they're starting to see, you know, maybe I could be one of these researchers. You right. Know, it seems like re- a really exciting process to be involved with. So I, I took a vow of poverty. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, went to, to Bloomington, Indiana. A bit, quite a transition, but yeah, it's, that's something that was... I never regret doing. Hmm. So that, that was kind of, I'd say that um, while at the UN, I think maybe that's when I began this path that has taken me here to, you know, your right. question, how yeah. did you end up here? And I, I kind of saw myself with the, um, being part of a scientific enterprise, at least for a while. To, to be a part of a group that would produce evidence or answers to some of these burning questions in the area of forest policies in right. developing countries. But I'd, I have to be honest, I didn't see myself as pursuing a career. I didn't see myself as a professor. Okay. And as a teacher. I mean, I, I still think that teaching is um, one of the most challenging parts of my job. And I, you know... I didn't really choose this profession for the teaching. Right. But I'm, you know, it's something I've kind of accepted as part of the job and something mm-hmm. I, I try to get better at and, and enjoy. But teaching well is hard. Oh, man. Yeah. And it gets harder and harder. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I was talking to, I mean, just as an aside, um, so I'm teaching, I've taught this one course on environmental governance uh, seven years now in a row. And I was talking to a senior colleague of mine right before the last time I was about to go teach it. And he said, how are you doing? You feeling good? You know, you're, you're nervous. And I was like, you know, I had my initial response was, well, you know, I'm feeling pretty good. This is the seventh time through. And he's like, you sure? And I was like, no, like, it's still a lot of work. Like I compare it to kind of playing, you know, being like a player in the national, the NBA or something. Right. Yeah. Like just because you were good last year, that's right. if you want to keep being good, you got to keep on working hard. Like yeah. the, the yeah. students you teach this year don't know about the class that went well last year. You, you think like in your mind, you say, oh, you just like cruise control. You, right. pre- you prep it once and yeah. then you just press repeat. Right. No. Yeah. Not to do it well, right? Because you can. You could just show up with a monotone and just kind of walk through things. Yeah. But if you really want to engage people and excite them or make connections like that's That's right. That's that's the hard part. Yeah. That's what takes preparation. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, yeah. It's a hard, a hard balance. You know, because mm. you... I'm so excited about the research and there's so many papers underway and puzzles to solve. And like, it's exciting to, to yeah. work through those things and, oh, now I have to go and teach. <laughs> it's uh-huh. like almost, almost like that sometimes. And yeah, sometimes I don't do my students justice, hmm. a bit too caught up in the research. But, you know, that's, that's part of the job. Learn to, to balance and um, give students what they deserve. Yeah. I mean, it's almost like it's part of the jobs, right? I mean, that's an interesting yeah. thing about being an academic is you have these different hats yeah. Yeah. that are sometimes feel invisible to each other. Yeah. 
right? Like when I go to a conference, no one knows anything about my teaching identity. Right. And yeah. my students, yeah. unless I make a point to tell them and in- incorporate that into my teaching, don't know about yeah. my identity as a researcher. That's right. Yeah. So it's, there's this kind of like split dynamic to yeah, it. Yeah, you have you have these dual personalities yeah. <laughs> that you have to develop. Yeah. Or professional tracks, at least. Uh, yeah. I mean, so going back to FAO, too, before we kind of leave that for Indiana. Hmm. Um, I mean, it seems like it would be helpful in the long run for organizations like the FAO to what? Either, I mean, to develop this kind of expertise, either in-house or via relationships with other people. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it, since you left, how I many have you? Do you think there's been progress made in that dire- in that direction in terms of uh, a lot of the organizations, maybe the FAO, maybe other ones that you've worked with? I know you've worked with other ones, kind of more formally engaging with the research process to try to make their what they do more well informed by evidence. Yeah, I think there there has been some good efforts. I don't think the solution is developing that. Capacity. That's a better for word. Research yeah. in within in house. Okay. I think, but developing relationships, closer relationships with those who actually address research questions that are important to the organization. Right. That's that's what's missing, I think. Hmm. And 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 that's why FAO at the time was a leader in new knowledge about community forestry. Right. And even now, as I run into colleagues who work in the same general area, whether it's in Indonesia or Nepal or India uh, or East Africa, if they worked in community forestry in the 80s and 90s, and that's when many countries started uh, experimenting with these policies, including the joint forest management in India, and that later was kind of uh, copied by some East African countries. And, and is that, sorry, is that joint forest management? Is that basically like co-management joint between like a local users and government actors? Is yeah, that, so okay. the government basically gives usufruct rights to uh, formal, uh, former state land or state of lands, okay. government lands. And... Nepal is kind of a, they went took it one step further where they actually devolved more property rights. So in in JFM or Joint Forest Management, uh, the incentives are not as strong to manage long term because the government takes a cut of all the earnings from community forestry. They have to pay something like half or maybe even more in some cases to the government. Okay, like that split profits wow. for right. the government. Whereas in Nepal, the community owns basically every, uh, all the products that they harvest. They don't have to share with government. So they have more extensive use of rights. Mm-hmm. Uh, but still, you know, governments have a lot to say about how the forests are managed, etc. But I'd say, you know, back to your question about what should organizations of this nature, like UN agencies or development banks, in terms of research, I think... I think World Bank has a, a pretty healthy relationships with many development experts and in, um, research institutes or think right. tanks that can help them. I mean, they even, I don't know if it still exists, but had their own uh, 
kind of research group that were kind of feeding or trying to address many of these burning development questions. Right. Uh, but I don't think I see enough of it. I mean, I know for a fact that in academia, I have tons of colleagues that would like to work with organizations. And like they, in their own eyes, they think they're, they're doing relevant work, right. you know, addressing questions that would, you know, not producing knowledge that would be useful for organizations. But those organizations have shown very little interest in their work. Okay. You know, so you see that there is a big supply. There is a big supply. Huh. And I, be I believe there is a big demand, but it may not be very practical for the organization. So this is my hypothesis as to why there aren't more connections between yeah. the research or research community and development organizations. I think there is a supply and I think there is some demand, but what might be missing are often the mechanisms to make it convenient or, right. or less costly. Because if it's all on the desk officers who have the demand, they want these questions answered, like myself when I was a junior professional, you know, these questions, you know, what, what are good answers to these? What do researchers say about it? You know, how do we create these links? You know, it, it takes some higher level vision and negotiation and yeah. connection making to kind of get a, a formalized agreement in place where maybe there's some some working papers commissioned mm -hmm. uh, or maybe pay for some data collection or analysis, right? Or organize some seminars where there's more points of meeting and encounter between those two communities. Yeah. But Bill Clark at Harvard uh, talks a lot about from knowledge to action. And, you know, how, how, how do you make these connections and the bridges between the two communities? And he highlights the power of having these boundary organizations right. that operate in this space in between. And that, that is, I think, a very useful mechanism to, to a space for where the, the suppliers and the demanders of knowledge can meet and interact to make sure that the, the questions that the researchers are addressing are the relevant ones right. for the decision makers or the, the policy organization. So you think there's room for a, like a new kind of boundary organization that might do this? Or? Yeah, yeah, but I think it take and, and you know the the examples of boundary organizations that I know about are the in the in the agricultural or natural resource arena the the CG system the consortium group on international agricultural. CGI. CGIR. I remember that's what yeah. it's ca called. We'll, we'll look that up and edit it. Yeah. It? That will be. <laughs> but the CG system for short. You know, so organizations like C4, ECRAF, CIAT, you know. IFPRI is within that too, right? In DC? Or is that? IFPRI in DC, yeah. right. Yeah. And so I believe, you know, 15 to 20 specialized agencies, but they're, the, the sci they're scientists, right? They, they are researchers. But they also have so they have, you know, the definition of a boundary organization. You have one foot in the policy arena, policy decision makers, governments at a pretty high level, and but the other foot firmly in the research community. Hmm. So the the scientists, these organizations, they conduct serious research, and they're supported by 
development banks and national governments who fund some of their research funds through the CG system. Mm-hmm. So I think it is a good model for what can be done. And it's, it's yeah, I think it's inspiring. They're doing good research and producing really uh, phenomenal results. And I mean, uh, an example of that is a bit controversial, but the Green Revolution back in the 70s, it was fueled by innovations uh, by in uh, in genetic research by the researchers in the CG system. Okay. And then promoted through, you know, releasing intellectual property rights or some of these uh, rice varieties, etc. And... Um, yeah, that technical knowledge has helped solve a lot of problems. Right. And that's potentially something, um, I mean, it's potentially a career path too for people who just got their PhDs if they're thinking that maybe academia or et cetera isn't for them. Yeah. Because I know like yeah. more and more, I know graduates of interdisciplinary programs in environmental studies or sustainability science. <clears throat> and I think a lot of them are... They have this tension where they, they really love the generation of knowledge, but they also kind of want to be engaged with the world. However, you know, I mean, yeah. that's a simplistic way to put it. Right. Um, to answer questions that are real questions for people. That yes, exactly. Actually could actually help in some way. Yeah. And so I could see yeah. something like the CJR system being attractive to those types of folks. Yeah. No, I, I find it, uh, in my experience in working with some of these agencies or organizations within the CG system, uh, yeah, extremely rewarding, high quality scientists, but also they know what's going on. Right. And, and they, you know, through conversations with them, I learned about, you know, new developments and uh, also why this latest idea didn't turn out as we had hoped perhaps. You know? Right. It was just this one conversation recently with folks at C4. They've been doing this global comparative study on, Red Plus. Okay, sure. So they, I mean, they, they've been proponents of Red Plus and, you know, kind of feeding that whole negotiation process with studies and doing great work. Uh, but then also providing scientific advice on how we might monitor and measure whether or not these pilot projects, uh, Red Plus, that are ongoing, whether they're actually producing the results that they were designed for. Right. Are they actually reducing emissions? And can we show that these reductions wouldn't have happened in the absence of these projects? Right. Is there additionality? Yeah. Yeah. Do do they actually, do we, have we promised or do we keep what we had promised earlier? Right. right? So they designed this really terrific, um, monitoring system and it's a it's a global comparative study so they selected for each of these villages that had been selected to be a pilot project they carefully matched or found a matching village nearby that didn't receive the treatment so they did careful baseline studies in all of these treated and untreated control villages and then as the intervention was being rolled out, they continued to measure and visit doing household surveys and com- uh, community focus group meetings, etc. Yeah. And then uh, now the pilot projects are ending and so they're doing an after. So it's a real randomized controlled trial 
type type of design uh, with with control villages also carefully monitored and I just talked to the researchers involved with the Brazil part of this study and Brazil is one of the kind of model countries for this where the federal government and many state governments have really invested in red plus as a model for forest conservation okay but the results are really mixed. So they've now just completed the third wave of data collection. And there is no simple, you know, yes, no answer to the question, did it work? Right. Very mixed results. And this, in, in terms of the additionality, mm-hmm. they can't really say that there was any okay. additional gain. That they, they can't say it wouldn't have happened in the absence of this particular intervention, you know. And part of that problem is that in practice, hardly any of these projects actually enforce the conditionality. That you know, the, the Red Plus it's supposed to be a conditional payment. You only get the payment if you actually comply with you know right. the the, the forest conservation. Yeah. yeah, but that that's very complicated and costly to enforce in practice. Imagine you're an NGO working with a community, yeah, and you say we have these money we. We will pay you if you don't use the forest. You just set the forest aside. Right. But, you know, so their payment may be delayed or somebody gets sick and they have to cut some and they're like, yeah, we cut some. And the, the NGO is not, okay, so then we won't pay you. Right. No NGO would do that if they value a long-term relationship with the community. So actually, Which they ought for- to. Right, yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, but they're, are they too soft? Like, shouldn't they be you know, holding the, the villagers accountable. You know, this is money from the rich world that they're receiving, but they promise to not to cut the forest. Right. They are well, the enforcer, right? Like that's kind of a... Yeah. yeah. But I huh. mean, that, I mean, you, you can't do that. And especially if, if you're an organization that really want to work with the community and try to improve things, you can't just cut them off. I mean, that, that seems like... Right. Uh, unsustainable. Well, honestly, I mean, to bring it back to Lynn again, it reminds me of, you know, she had these design principles that she introduced mm-hmm. in Governing the Commons. Design principle five is that sanctions should be graduated. Right. And yeah. one of the ways I've made sense of that is is that if you, you know, if someone makes a mistake, I mean, I think, you know, parents understand this, right? Like if yeah. you should graduate your sanctions based on the severity of the penalty. If you don't, then you're you're going to disrupt the relationship you have with your kid because, yeah. you know, they spilt something and yeah. suddenly they're in timeout for five hours or something, yeah. right? Like you can't – and so I could see something similar where yeah. if you just have these draconian responses to yeah. all of these like small little um, rule-breaking incidents, then you're yeah. going to disrupt these relationships. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know what the explanation is, why, is, why they are not enforcing the conditionality. Right. I mean, I, I just speculated about maybe it was because – the NGO doesn't want to jeopardize the relationship. Right. Maybe they're not doing graduated sanctions or maybe they are and it, even that didn't help. Right. Or maybe the need is so big or maybe the community – maybe they're bad people that cut them. Maybe it's not even the community that's right. cutting it. Yep. Anyway, you know, there, there's, there are many possible explanations to that. But, you know, it, it's just one of these – really important research results that the policy community really needs to think about. Yeah. Because there were, I mean, I remember the hype. It started 
like in the you know maybe 2010 2012 you know this idea of red plus and there were tens of billions of dollars committed by member governments to this program like the financial incentives to provide to governments who can then create programs at the local levels to really get serious about forest conservation it was like a hype yeah right? this was the solution and now we see oh well maybe maybe it's still part of the solution mm-hmm. but it's it's hard yeah, yeah. to really change these things i mean there's a reason why we have high rates of deforestation right and there there are strong forces at work to shape our landscapes right yeah so even if you have a strong government (laughs) right yeah yeah it's hard to curtail these really powerful forces so Yeah, yeah yeah it's i think those kind of research results are really important for policy organizations. But and in the case of you know C4 being engaged with this, I know they're working with the government of Brazil, for example, and the state governments. Mm-hmm. So they learn about these results, results from the global comparative study. So that's it. That's a nice uh, partnership between scientists and decision makers that I think could be immensely useful yeah of course the the, the follow-up question is okay so if red plus couldn't do it what could or how can we make it better right yep right if it if it's not doing it why not yeah yeah Yeah. so what what is the next or what's the tweak to the program that what can one could uh, imagine yeah yeah so that that's a conversation uh that kind of brought home to me again that the the important role played by scientists in helping governments and other organizations mm-hmm. figure out how to solve these really tricky problems. Yeah. Oh, wow. There's so much here. I mean, we probably don't want to go on for hours and hours, though, in a way I would like yeah. to. Yeah. I mean, so, yeah, I mean, one thing you said I think is really resonates really strongly with me. I feel like, you know, ever s- when we first study public policy, you know, you'll read like a policy instrument textbook and it's kind of compares, you know, there's taxes and there's subsidies and there's, yeah. you know, tradable environmental allowances in the form of ITQs and cap and trade. Yeah. And I feel like a lot of the policy discourse revolves around kind of comparing these different instruments yeah. in a way that sometimes feels to me like it underemphasizes the importance of how they're implemented. Yeah. Right. Because you could say, oh, well, red didn't work. Yeah. Oh, we can't do that anymore. It's got to be a different instrument. So, like, it's the instrument's fault. It's the instrument's the, fault. The design of that instrument that failed. Right. Yeah. So, let's not tweak it. Let's not look at the process of implementation. Let's yeah. go to a different instrument because we've proven that this one doesn't work. Yeah. And it, I don't know. I mean, it felt like that was, to, to some extent, baked into at least my policy analysis education yeah. also at Indiana, which was yeah. – it was – it was comparative, but what was being compared were the instruments themselves and not yeah. kind of like their implementation or, or the processes. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I agree. It, it, and, and also, I mean, part that, that's one aspect of it that perhaps we're not giving, we're not giving enough importance to the process of how the instruments were chosen in the first place. place. Right. Who were, 
who I mean, none of these communities that received the Red Plus treatment were part of that discussion, right? right? They just kind of received the offer. You want to get this treatment? Sounds like a good deal to me if I were a community, right? Uh, But, so that's part of also that process. Who who participates in selecting and, and designing the specifics of what the treatment or the intervention should be? Is that what we need? Is that going to make a difference for us? Right. You know? So it's often the creation of an instrument is based on a very general analysis Mm -hmm. at an aggregate level where, yeah, I I guess at a very aggregate level, if I were to name one cause of the degradation of natural resources, like forests or rivers or what have you yeah probably conversion from forest to agriculture like market forces that right undervalue forest ecosystems and perhaps overvalue agricultural products right right so yeah and if that's if that is the key problem you're trying to address at a very general and aggregate level you create an instrument to internalize the externalities and right. provide extra financial incentives for letting the forest be and let the ecosystem flourish, right? So you identify the main problem as an undervaluation by the markets of the forest ecosystem. So your solution is you provide cash to make up the difference. So now it's being valued at a reasonable rate so that people are not tempted. Yeah, at that general level. And we're level. all done. Like, and yeah, right. Yeah. We figured it out. Right. So, but that's a very general model. But we know that, you know, people will vary uh, and community groups will, some uh, will value it more than others and in right. different ways. And it's not always just market forces at work. There are other things that lead to these outcomes. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, so. I think just having developing more nuanced knowledge on those. Yeah, I think you're right on the implementation side as well, hmm. right? Who are the organizations? How do they communicate? What's their relationship with the, the kind of the target population? Yep. And, yeah. I mean, it's another way um, that I make sense of in like Lynn's design principles because several of them feel like process oriented principles. I mean, I mentioned the graduate sanctions one, you've got accountable monitoring is principle four. So a lot of those conflict resolution. Yeah. So those are really, to me, about implementation. And they, they, they highlight for us the importance of ha- having some way of doing those things, kind of whatever, whatever principle you're implementing. Yeah. But who, for, whose decision is it to make? Which policy instrument should be implemented? I mean, I think that we we have you know we've been trained in the public administration public policy and it's a very top down view but this is the job of the government and the advisors of the executive and come up with new proposals for how things are done blah, blah. but at the end of the day who whose decision is that to make in the case of you know natural resources we have this um we trained in this tradition, yeah. the workshop, etc. We have a feeling that well, it, communities themselves have an important role in all of this, and they are not just subjects of 
instruments imp- imposed on them. Right. Like yes. uh, uh, policies work well when they cooperate and you know pitch in and make those policy instruments work. That, no, that's that's a very reduced role. Yeah. We, we think you know they self organization and self governance and having a voice and actually shaping their own rules right. can play a, a big difference. But our whole modern state enterprise i use yeah, that yeah. word deliberately like it's, it's like we have this concept of a state uh-huh. that is you know are you channeling some vincent ostrom there or like has it- well yeah I'm, I'm thinking of that like they uh, lynn despised the term yeah yeah used loosely but you know it is kind of how we are often trained to view it like it's the role of the government. It's right. their decision to make which instrument to apply to this particular problem that they're observing. That's right. The, and but I I come to appreciate more of the, kind of the anarchistic view of uh, right. Vincent uh, in particular, perhaps, and but maybe like James also, Scott or like yeah, kind of like that. Where where the local people themselves at least should be recognized yep. to have autonomy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it written into many states' constitution in the United States is, is what is called home rule. Mm-hmm. It's explicitly recognized in the constitution that self-organization and rulemaking at the very, the, the, the most local level is a fundamental part of governance of the state. Yeah. And that's recognized in many of the constitution, including the constitution of the state of Colorado. Okay. Which which I think is an an important thing because it, it provides a different perspective on whose decision it is to make. What what is the intervention that is needed? I mean, okay, so I think the default position. What is the default position for solving problems? If you have home rule in the state's constitution, the default is at least to some extent resting with the people themselves, the citizens themselves. If they can't solve the problem, mm-hmm. they can they have recourse and ways to to ask for help and perhaps ask for an intervention. Right. But it seems like the default position in practice in most industrialized countries is not that that local right. people. Try first, and if that doesn't work, then the government steps in to fix it. It's right. the other way around, where often local people are not even allowed to try, or they're not recognized as having the capacity to try. Right. And I think that's that's a really, um, I mean, it's a big thing to try to change. Right. But it it is how I more and more view the role of government. And, kind of prescriptively, even. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Choice of policy instruments. And, of course, you need citizens with a lot of agency and then feeling empowered yeah. to challenge, perhaps, some of the policy instruments and make counterproposals. But and, some of that can only maybe happen through experience and actually trying that stuff. Is Yeah, I think so. But, but I mean, it would help if the governments, you know, at different levels, mm-hmm. even municipal or state and federal – would somehow recognize that, yeah, it it would be better, right? If they could handle it themselves, we would yep. get better results, and we can try to help. You know, we ha- and we have these set of programs exactly for these communities that are struggling. They're trying to make it on themselves. We have this, you know, extension service. We may have this competitive fund for 
you know, setting aside protected areas within your community or developing ecotourism projects, like having government programs that are designed for supporting communities that want to govern right. more Honest. themselves. Yeah. Right? It reminds me of a term I read. I mean, Lynn assigned me this book back in grad school by a fellow named Graham Marshall. Yeah. And I loved it. In Australia? Yeah, in Australia. Yeah. And of course, I'm going to get the name of the book wrong. I can look it up later. I think it's Collaborative Economics for Environmental Management, something like that, from oh, okay. 2005. And in the book, it um, he mentions this term introduced by someone else called subsidiarity. Subsidiarity, And I yeah. think that's what this term is referring to, the idea that you default to the lowest level of governance yeah. Yeah. and try to sort stuff out there. Right. And honestly, it reminds me again of like, you know, lots of different types of human relationships. I was with my brother and his two daughters the other day. And of course, he's saying, sort it out yourselves. Right. And if there's a yeah. problem, I'll come in. But like, yeah, try, yourself figure, try it out, figure it out. Yeah, um, <laughs> that's right. That's subsidiarity. That's yeah. subsidiarity in the household, right? Yeah. And the other aspect of what you're talking about that um, reminds me of another concept that we mentioned yesterday in our talk is, right, the, well, you, you said the word, the, the default, yeah, which I was first introduced to in the 2008 book Nudge by uh, Kay Sunstein, Sustein, I think it is, and, yeah. and Richard Thaler. Yeah. And so, they go through these different kind of um, nudges, as they call them, like yeah. these kind of yeah. subtle ways in which we can non-onerously change people's behavior. And the one that every time I read the book, the one that makes the biggest effect on me is this idea of a default. Yeah. Because again, I mean, we experience it every day in our lives, right? It's yeah. you go to, you you know, companies know all about this, right? You go, every company, right? It'd be like the default is that they will send you emails. That's right. The default is that you will pay them another $99 at the end of uh, the year. Automatic renewal of the subscription. Right. All if, this stuff. If you stuff. get the first three months free, yes. the fourth month will be You're defaulted in, <laughs> yeah. right? <laughs> we have your credit card information. <laughs> and it's been that's been one of the main defaults that I've heard that's been picked up in behavioral science and behavioral change to kind of try to change people's behavior. So, okay, well, the default will be that you'll pick – you'll be in this particular healthcare plan as opposed to say none. Yeah. And the default is you're actively thinking about what would be best for society. Right. Like the group. And, I mean, hopefully also for the individual. But but mostly for the – for society to avoid public – good problems right. right and it's i mean it's powerful right it's there's so much momentum in everything that we do yeah. that it you know i i submit to defaults like i think probably every day of my life yeah yeah um i mean it's tricky right it's like th yeah. then you are kind of you do have this idea of there being some actor that, that is capable of like deciding what's in the best interest for society but maybe governance generally is predicated on some notion like that yeah okay so a lot's happening in this conversation <laughs> so i you know i didn't want to miss being able to talk to you about Bloomington before we're done. Yeah. yeah. Um, right. Cause I was in Bloomington. I was in Bloomington for eight years total. Um, first as a PhD student, then as a postdoc. And I really loved it. Um, overall love being a grad student there. Uh, my family was convinced that I like walked through cornfields to get to work every day. Cause the, <laughs> yeah. that's the image they have. That's the image the Northeasterners have of the parts yeah. of the Midwest, I guess. I mean, I, um, and certainly there's a lot of corn. Um, so I just, I'm interested in hearing about what, you know, what your experiences were like, um, you know, with SPIA, the school of public environmental affairs, um, with the PhD program you were in with the workshop in political theory and policy analysis, which is the workshop that, Vincent and Lynn Ostrom found that I think in like 1973 at IU. 
Um, what attracted you to it? How did you like it? Were there challenges or like, how was, how did you experience that as like the next phase for you? Oh yeah. So much to talk about. I mean, that was a, an incredible experience, especially working with the Ostroms. Mm. I mean, that, now, if I were to boil it down to what made uh, the biggest impact on me, it was that relationship with Lynn in particular. And, and it was not, not just about the content of the work, like doing exciting things in research. That was uh-huh. part of it. That was certainly, you know, an exciting part of it. But uh, they made you feel special and welcome. Mm-hmm. You never felt like you were intruding or being the fifth wheel or right. like you belonged. You mattered. You mattered. Yeah. yeah. They saw you and they were always quick to give compliments. I, rem- I remember, mm. you know, Vincent, he could be, so, oh, he was so scary to me, you know. I've heard stories about him. He was not as, pr- not as around as much by the time yeah, I really yeah. got engaged with it. So he, he co-taught uh, an institutional analysis seminar. So they did. They had uh, two seminars uh, on institutional analysis when I was a graduate student. One was micro institutions, and that was the one Lynn taught. Okay. And then there was the macro institutions, and I don't know really why that distinction. And that was Vincent's class, but he co-taught it with Mike McGinnis at the time. So. But I guess they were talking. I guess yeah, it may, maybe it made sense now that I think about it. But anyway, so I took this class with Vincent and Mike, and you know he was he was always crit- so critical. It was like the 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 epitome of a critical thinker. Yeah, like he could see a problem with any argument you made, and he would point it out. He would never say, yeah, you're right. Wow, what a great thought. You know, so right. he, was, he was scared. Like Lynn would always. But anyway, you know, that was when it was about the work and the content. It was hypercritical. Yeah, yeah. But then I remember, uh, uh, yeah, so the first time I presented at one of these mini conferences. Yeah. You know, after the, after at the, the, end, at of- the end of the seminars, you presented a research paper and they would have faculty members from different areas who were studying the particular subject or who knew something about the particular subject of your research paper. They would critique it, be discussants of your paper. And Vincent wasn't the discussant on this particular paper. And I had he he I hadn't even finished the first sentence of my presentation and he interrupted me. What do you mean by oh, I don't no. know what the term was. Right. Government or one of these big questions. And I you know <laughs> almost had to excuse myself and go to the bathroom. Right. I was like, Take a moment. <laughs> I was scared. Um, yeah. But but then, you know, afterwards he said, what I loved about your presentation, you spoke so loud and clearly. I could actually hear everything. And you were about the only one that I could hear in the whole conference. So he was like, wow, yeah. Yeah, nice. but you know, he was only critical of the content, but not of me as a person. So, you know, then I kind of realized, no, it's, you know, when they're critical, it's not about me. Yeah. It's not like uh, they're not trying to be rude or disapproving of me as a person. It's about the work and they take it so seriously. They want to improve on it. Right. That's, you know, and once you get that, then then you can deal with that kind of stress, right? Mm-hmm. But that was an important lesson for me to kind of learn 
Uh, I mean, you felt good in the family of the workshop, right? Yeah. And that was special. But at the same time, there was, you know, everybody was so committed to the work and worked so hard. Yeah, yeah. Showed up at meetings and were committed to, to the workshop and pitched in. So it was a real exciting collective effort to be a part of. So, I mean, that, there's so many things that one could say. But to me, that was the, the, that really shaped me and my thinking about scholarship and how to work with graduate students. Yeah. What, you know, how do we both teach and kind of show mm -hmm. uh, how to do work and how do we work together? So, yeah, I mean, as you're speaking, I'm reminded of discussions I've heard about the, the use of the term workshop in the name of the center, right? It's not a center for something, something. It's a workshop in, and I remember, yeah, I, I, I'm hoping I'm making this up. I think I remember Lynn talking about, you know, the choice of the word workshop when they were first starting, yeah. really um, embodying a lot of what you're talking about. Yeah. Right. So seeing science not as only about the accumulation of technical skills. Yeah. Or the ability to follow a certain recipe, but also, I mean, there's even an article, is it like Dyson Freeman or someone who wrote an article called Science as a Craft Industry and we were assigned it. And yeah. Yeah. Really powerful argument there because I think for a lot of us, what makes science, as you, were, you said earlier, like 40 minutes ago, right? A lot of what makes research and science interesting is this, there's a feeling of creativity and exploration, et cetera. Yeah. It's yeah. not that you're only just following a recipe. I mean, you need yeah. technical skills. Yeah. But what makes it fun is when you those technical skills give you the structure to kind of be creative. Yeah, yeah. So I re, I've always loved the name, you know, the word workshop. Yeah. Part largely because it embodies a lot of what you're talking about. Yeah. It's not like an institute or right. Uh, you know, center. Or, you know, Which are f fine. Like yeah, there's nothing yeah, like yeah. wrong with those terms. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, but yeah, they thought about it carefully, and I, yeah. I think there were. I mean, both that. Uh, reason that which may have to do with the content of what they actually were trying to do there, kind of the mission of apprenticeship, right? You know, teaching a craft like a, a woodworker would bring on an apprentice exactly, to yeah. show show them the ropes, so to speak. Yeah, like they did with graduate students, involve them in projects, and you know that you we've talked about the the book Meriton's Dilemma that yep. came out in two thousand five. You know that we started that already back in the year 2000. I was my second year as a graduate student. Lynn invited me to be part of this team, and, and they needed a Swedish-speaking person. Right. <laughs> so that was okay. Probably the main reason I was invited, but because it was a, a study commissioned by by CEDA, the Swedish aid agency. But that was I was an apprentice, right? Yeah. That that's the experience through which I learned how to write. I remember my first drafts, man, Lynn had to try hard to be nice to me. Yeah, I, yeah. It, was, I, you know, it was bad. I recognize it now. I mean, I, I didn't know how to write well. Yeah, yeah. But through that experience, at the end of it, uh, I learned. Yeah, yeah. You know, I was no, by no means an expert just after that, but I knew, you know, I would discover things. I learned things, how to write and, yeah. and do that better. Anyway, you know, the apprenticeship. So that was one of the reasons they picked that name, I think. That that kind of embodies what they were trying to do. Types of relationships they wanted to have. Yes. Yeah. But then another uh, reason I remember Lynn talking about, they wanted also to pick a name that IU didn't know what to make of. <laughs> okay. Like, okay, so you're not a center, so these rules don't apply then. And you're uh -huh. not an institute. Okay, so these rules don't apply to you. 
you weren't you? What's the, well, that's a kind of a special thing. So that forced the university to kind of negotiate the terms of yeah. that relationship between this new weird entity mm-hmm. on campus and the university. So that gave them more freedom. Yeah. And they didn't want to, ha- they wanted to have freedom to do what they saw as important. Yeah. And I can see that now, you know, running a center on campus at the university just published new rules for centers that we have to have certain uh, administrative capacity, certain number of hours of secretary support or like right. all these formal rules now handed down to us and we just have to, you know, comply with a center, right. which will be a Kind of a headache. I feel like it's hard not to be a little reflexive in our own lives. I mean, this is something I said to you yesterday. Hmm. I mean, so Stefan Partzolo is the one who told me this um, fellow who, you know, he and I worked together on this podcast. And he said, you know, the interesting thing about social science is the object is also the subject. Right. And so we have, we study governance and we study formal rules. We study top down versus bottom up governance, et cetera. Yeah. And then we experience all that stuff in our own lives. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so yeah. in this context, you know, it's you hear about kind of onerous rules coming from the top down. It's hard not to yeah. be like, oh, this sounds a lot like the book yeah. I just read, etc. Yeah. yeah, maybe I should change the name of the center to the workshop. And yeah. <laughs> exactly, yeah. I mean, so that's actually a good segue to. Well, actually, before we go to that, I just have one final question about your time in Indiana. So, did you? Um, was your time there? Was your project on Ifri? Was you? Did you, was that con- continuous for you, or did you kind of get involved in other stuff? Yeah. In terms of the actual research. So when I, as a graduate student, so I worked on the Samaritan's Dilemma project. Right. As kind of a side gig. Uh-huh. I mean, we I, uh, I was supported during the summertime. I was an RA at SIPEC, uh, you know, the kind of the sister organization to the workshop, uh, but focusing more on forests. Uh, right. Governance. And so... I, you know, I th- thought about maybe I should just make the this Samaritan's Dilemma and the International Aid Institutional Analysis Project, my dissertation project. That would right. make it easy, right? You're already in the middle of this, collecting all You're the data. There, yeah. uh, and a lot of graduate student colleagues urge me to do that, you know, the more senior ones. But, I mean, I, I really wanted to go back to those questions that I had while working at the FAO about, you know, what are the effects of these new efforts, new policies to promote community forestry, yep. decentralized, decentralized forest governance. What, you know, what are the results? It, are those actually making things better? Right. For local people, those seemed like really important and unanswered questions. And those were the questions I wanted to pursue with career research. So, you know, I, I decided to, to pursue, those, pursue those ideas for my dissertation and found other colleagues. And Lynn was supportive in this endeavor, developing a, a research proposal. And it picked uh, you know, Bolivia as one of these really interesting and unique cases, con- a country that had really taken the decentralization uh, reform very seriously, mm-hmm. implementing 
a reform, like a drastic change in how forest governance happen happens in the country. And there weren't any good studies uh, to follow up. So these local governments that are now in charge or a lot of the decisions in the forestry sector, how's that whole experiment going? So, you know, I returned to that uh, question for mm. my dissertation. So IFRI was kind of part of that and, and the kind of questions that we ask in IFRI was part of it. And I actually did uh, six IFRI stu mini studies in communities in Bolivia uh, to study this relationship between the local community and the local government, right. which is a general purpose local government that is now responsible for a lot of the decisions in the forestry sector. Oh, yeah. Wow. So, yeah, that was part of my data collection. There was a little bit of IFRI, but that influence was mostly theoretical. Like here, here are the theoretical reasons for why local communities may do a better job in managing this forest. It has to do with property rights and, you know, they get incentives from, you know, potentially having a long-term interest in this land to develop products and caring for the forest, you know, all these things. So then that helped me that, okay, if those are the conditions that allow the communities to prosper mm -hmm. using forest and conserving forests, what can local governments do to help them do that. So that relationship seems critical. And then looking at the local government. So what are those incentive structures within the local government? What are the political incentives at work? Why is it that some local governments choose to have programs to support local communities? Other local governments who are supposed to support local communities, they don't. Right. And they just pocket the money from the central government that are earmarked for forestry, but they decide to to work on the, I don't know, urban projects uh, instead. Mm -hmm. So I, th I think IFRI was a big influence, but yeah, I, I later as a postdoc, I did like you after finishing the PhD, I stayed on as a postdoc for a few years. Hmm. So there I had more responsibilities in, in coordinating. I think that my title was the IFRI research coordinator or something like okay. that at the time. So, you know, organizing these biennial meetings of the IFRI network. Uh, we also had some money from donors to support our researchers in the different member organizations in the network. So that, yeah, towards after my PhD, mm -hmm. then I worked more and more with IFRI hmm. okay. uh, program and, and taught this annual seminar, the IFRI seminar that we had at IU. At the yeah, time. that was still there when I got, when I... Okay. Was around, yeah. 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 Okay, and then you. Okay, so you were at um, Cypex still at, Indi at Indiana for mm -hmm. a bit, and then you went directly to UC Boulder. Is that? Yeah, that was my first uh, job after. Okay. After Indiana. Yeah. So, and then, so I've been here si since then, since two thousand six. So thirteen years. Thirteen now. years. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and so I mean, I think to start to conclude our conversation it'd be great to hear about I mean how do we summarize 13 years <laughs> um, what you've been up to maybe more recently what are the projects that you've gone um, to work on since focusing a lot on forestry and decentralization what's what about that has stayed with you I know that, I mean you and I are working on this project on groundwater and agriculture in Colorado yeah 
Um, what's really exciting to you about that? What are the challenges? And then, I mean, the final question I'll just tell you now, I, you know, what do you think as a community studying these issues, you know, how do we move forward? What, what would, what would be good, right? I'm, for me, I'm always reminded of the 2010 book working together by Amy Petit, Marco Jansen and Lynn, yeah. right? I mean, for, cause a lot of it is to, to me about working together, you know, but how do you see it? So I'd love to hear about like, what you've been doing more recently and then from there like what do you see as yeah. the challenges or possibilities moving forward yeah yeah so right now i'm the things that i'm most excited about i think there are two things you know in most of this conversation has been about forests and yeah. you know that's kind of the the substantive area of policy that I became interested in and kind of stayed with. But one of the big challenges in trying to promote forest conservation is that, you know, it's a political one. Politicians in general, nobody hates forests, right. I don't think. Right. They all like forests, they like being around forests. They all know about the benefits of forests. Right. So it's not like a knowledge or lack of sensitivity. Right. Nobody wants to destroy forests, yet forest gets destroyed. And governments often play a big role in the destruction of forests because they value other things as well that compete with forests. Right. Like agriculture. People need to eat. And countries' uh, uh, economies depend to a large extent on the agricultural uh, sector right and so th by supporting that and really aggressively facilitating success in the agricultural sector that comes at the expense of trees and forests often right, right. so politicians it's not that they don't care about forests but they care about other things more so one of the things that i i've kind of realized and it's this is nothing new so it's not like something i discovered but uh I come to the realization, if we really care about forest conservation, we need to do a better job of framing the problem of deforestation. Okay. And so the, the, the thing that I'm interested in pursuing more through research is the importance of framing in policy analysis in general. <coughs> Excuse me. So, for example, I see an opportunity in, in many tropical countries to frame the problem of deforestation not primarily as an environmental problem, but as a problem related or, or a threat to human well-being mm -hmm. that has to a lot to do with health. Right. So when you deforest in a tropical country, you often have problems with disease, uh, dengue, malaria, but also... Uh, with water uh, quality. Right. And so instead of framing a problem as an, just an environmental problem, which has been basically the way we have tried to address deforestation. Right. It's bad for the environment. Greenhouse gases in particular, 20% of the global greenhouse gas emissions come from tropical deforestation. Right. Wow. Yeah. Big problem. We have to do something. But, you know... Politician, from a politician's perspective, yeah, that's one problem. But we have 49 other problems that right. are probably ranked higher right now. 
Right. And human health is often in the top five. Right. Okay. So if you can frame it in those terms, maybe you can get better traction for addressing, yeah, we want to reduce malaria in this particular area. And there's evidence that if we, you know, protect the forest and the primary forest is, is less susceptible to to the development of these uh, vector-borne diseases. You know, so that's that's something I'm interested in. And one way of doing that is through behavioral experiments, to, to experiment with different framings. So one okay. idea that we're exploring together with one of my graduate students, uh, Audrey Molina Garzon, uh, she does behavioral experiments, is actually trained by Juan Camilo Cárdenas. Okay. And, and uh, folks at the uh, Universidad de los Andes, Maria Alejandra Vélez, uh, mm-hmm. you may have uh, met as well. But so she, together with a really interesting organization that is headquartered here at uh, CU, it's the Governor's Task Force on Forests and Climate. So what it is, they, they're an international organization that invite the governor governors of states in federal countries. So the governor of California, the governor of Illinois are participating in this, as well as the governor of Acre in Brazil, Mato Grosso, eh, Pará, I think several Brazilian states, but also states or sub-national provinces in Indonesia, in the DRC, so there are 35 executives of subnational governments that are in this task force that uh, it's a network where they are uh, trying to come up with new policy ideas of approaches to conserve forests. There are also efforts to do some emission trading. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there is an agreement between the government of Acre and the government of California in emission trading. Okay. Through, you know, the buy. Uh, reduction credits, I believe, from Acre through forest conservation efforts in Acre. <laughs> so it's ultimately based on the cap and trade system in California? Can, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that forum, we thought that would be an excellent test bed for some of these framing experiments mm-hmm. that uh, Tara Grillo's at Purdue University uh, has helped us uh, think about to develop. So Adriana uh, has now gotten the invitation from the task force to attend one of their annual meetings to start uh, actually with the governors. Oh, wow. Uh, run these behavioral experiments, see how they respond to a different framing to deforestation vis-a-vis, you know, uh, as a, as an environmental problem, vis-a-vis a health problem. Oh, and that's maybe cool. Other that's really neat. Yeah. yeah. So okay. Real decision makers, right? Real right, executives. Yeah. Almost like presidents. Like, like there are presidents oh. of small countries almost. Yeah. Governor of California, right? Like that's- yeah, yeah. Yeah, all right. What is it, seventh biggest economy in the world? Yeah. Something like that. Okay. But, you know, so that's really exciting to me to be able to link environmental problems to other problems that are probably ranked higher on the politician's priority order. Right. So maybe we can get better traction. And in fact, you know, this is nothing new. Obama did this very successfully. I mean, if you you read this, the Clean Power Act, Mm -hmm. you know, the... His program to uh, regulate coal-fired power plants, mm-hmm. the whole rationale for that is public health. Right. 
And if you look at the Clean Air Act and Clean Water Act, the, the basic rationale the is health. Is, yeah. The framing is health. Right. And I think that's that's really powerful. Right. You know, that was in the 70s even. But, but if we look at it now, I think that's... Gotten away from that maybe? Yeah, at least in the international, you know, research, uh, international policy, when we're trying to promote environmental policies. Mm-hmm. We're kind of focused on the environmental problems, aren't hmm. we? Yeah. I mean, that's my, my perception, at least. But I don't think we're having much success in that. So maybe it's time to experiment with different ways of framing it. I think there's some, a lot of things that we could learn from, like how these policies came about here in the United States. Hmm. You know? So that's, that's kind of what I'm thinking about, excited about. You know, I'm learning about doing behavioral experiments. I find that fascinating yeah. and uh, really enjoy working with graduate students and colleagues and uh, learning about. With your apprentices. Using those. Yeah. yeah, that's right. I'm, yeah, yeah. Uh, and then we're, uh, what was your follow-up questions where I see the f- what, what we should be doing, where I yeah. see the field? I mean, I also know you mentioned leadership yesterday, so I don't know if you want to say more about that too. But yeah, the yeah. final question yeah. was kind of where do we go from here? Which is, I mean, right. part of what you were saying, it does relate to that. Yeah. I mean, that's, uh, it's a big question, you know, as a field, what is needed, what's missing. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I do believe that if we're going to move the needle, make a difference on any of this, that I agree that working together, that's, that's the only way we can do it. And, and in order to be able to work together, I mean, yeah, you know, we have this grant that brings us together, Yeah. you know, but that's, you know, we, we could make a difference, but it's pretty small scale, right? Mm-hmm. If you really want to have an impact, then I think it will take more than a village, yeah, yeah. more than one center, more than one project. Yep. And it requires a bigger scale effort kind of at a network level. Mm. Uh, mm-hmm. And and so the kind of networks that you know we were a part of as graduate students, they're still kind of working. But I feel like networks are not necessarily created to last forever. They're, okay, they're you know the workshop was at a hub for a network, you know that shared kind of a vision of institutional analysis and how that could make a difference in a lot of different problem solving arenas. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, they're not necessarily the hub of that network. Now they're trying to create a different network with the people who are there now. And that's fine. So I think these things are kind of ephemeral and that they don't need to exist forever, but maybe what's missing now is something to fill that space yeah. that has been left by the workshop. Sure. But there, there is a network like the IASC yep. and, you know, other. Uh, other things that can be uh, built on maybe. Yeah. Yeah. And, but maybe, you know, I'm not very active in any of those. I, mm-hmm. I, I, I'm a pretty small scale. These, I work with my graduate students. I have these projects. And so, you know, that takes up a lot of time. But these smaller projects, they are kind of connected in some way. Some people work on more than one project and I'm involved in most of them. So right. there's some synergies, but not at a very big scale. Right. And that may be what we need to 
try to create. Um, but you know, NSF in the past, I think it probably still does, but I don't know. Honestly, these research coordination network yeah. grants. Yeah. I mean, my understanding is that that's kind of what they're for is to like start up a new network to get people working together. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, it, it does seem like there are other people, you know, for example, NSF that yeah. would agree with what you're saying. Yeah. But it, networks are really hard. I've also been a part of a lot of failed initiatives that try to create networks. Uh-huh. But I think the problem and the reason for the failure many times is you, first you get the money. Somebody writes the proposal. Yes. You get the money. Yes. And now we have money to, to meet. Right. And you start paying people to meet. But then it's like, well, why are you meeting? Well, I have a free trip and they give me per diem and, you know, they commission Have an interesting paper. conversation. Yeah. yeah. But it's not for the, you're not going for the right reasons. It's like, I, I really believe that you have to take the initiative and really demand services that aren't provided and that's the reason you get together to do things that you couldn't do by yourself right and now you like you have to connect with other people otherwise you can't do right. what you've set out to do yeah right so that i think it has to start there i think it's it's counterproductive to to get the money first and then try to kick start it i think you then you run the risk of crowding out those really important yeah. uh, reasons for why you start wanted to start it in the first place. Yeah. I mean, it reminds me of there was a, a guest speaker at a geography symposium uh, that I went to a while back in Hanover. And he was talking about it might have been an NSF CNH project, but it was, any, it was an interdisciplinary project. Yeah. And he was talking about the reasons why the project really struggled. And a lot of it reduced to, you know, what you're kind of talking about. So you get yeah. the money, yeah. you know, and you say, oh, well, you know, this person's a well-known ecologist. Well, let's get that person. And then this person's yeah. a well-known anthropologist. So let's yeah. get them. Yeah. Um, but there's not necessarily a lot of social capital or common understanding. Or buy-in. Or buy-in. Yeah. The things that, again, to be reflexive about this, the things that we study in our own work that we understand – yeah. Are the social glue that are needed to actually make groups yeah. work well together? Yeah, and promote ownership, like people yeah. taking ownership and like, yeah, want to be part of this. I don't care what it costs or right. what you pay me. Yeah, I'm there for another reason. Right, I need this, like this, you know, fire in your belly. Yeah, and you seek it out, and you, you know, like you invest your time, and it's on you because you need this. Yeah, it's that's so hard to cultivate. I think. Yeah, but. Maybe if like-minded people just decide, you know, we yeah, we're going to start small and we're going to invite people, but we're not going to pay them to come. Right. If you really want to. That's interesting, right? Like, we, and we maybe we have to create a, a barrier. If it's you and I, we have this idea, we want to ah, study framing of policy problems. Right. Okay. Uh, we start this, you know, conversation and we, we maybe do design some experiments together and we talk to other people. Are you interested in joining? Yeah, sounds interesting. Uh, well, you know, we don't have money. You have to pay your own way. We, we have to, I think, perhaps create a barrier right. to really test their commitment. Right. Because if, if they're in it for the wrong reasons, they're just going to be deadwood or, you know, a, a drag. Yeah, yeah. But to, be, to, to have self-selection into something for the right reasons, I think that 
then maybe after a while it creates its own dynamic of, yeah, if, if you're not like-minded, you're not going to feel at home in that group. Right. Right. And so you, you, you have to develop those norms as a group perhaps yeah. uh, uh, to create that identity and then it can take off. Maybe I don't know. I'm speculating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe that's what's, what's needed to – I don't know. I mean, so maybe my uh, question back to you would be – Uh-oh. Okay. <laughs> what's needed for a field to move forward? I guess it depends on what where you want your field to end up. I think oh, it's yeah, like sure. You, you kind of imply that we're not being very successful as it is. We should be more successful. Mm-hmm. somehow but what is it that we try to accomplish that we currently aren't able to i mean for me i, I guess there's there'd be two main dimensions to my response one is that i think that and it goes back to the motivations for some of the original workshop projects these synthesis synth- synthetic workshop yeah. projects yeah that we've got a lot of this and actually this is one of the main points of the working together book is that we have all of this distributed knowledge yeah. Um, distributed in PDF form, distributed in brain form, yeah. just like informal knowledge that yeah. all these different people have. Yeah. And that we're not leveraging a lot of that knowledge to create a, I wouldn't call that a body of knowledge almost at this point because uh-huh. it's not cohesive. Yeah. Right. Or whatever. Some coherent. It's coherent or something, right? Yeah. Like it's, um, so I think we need, how do we go from kind of the normal science phase of things? We're all kind of grinding our own gears. Yeah. And I don't say that pejoratively, but like that's the, yeah. How do we go from that to have a second step, which is integration of knowledge? Yeah. Um, I think that's something that needs to be taken more seriously and relates to some stuff I've talked to you about already. You know, how do we get more consistent and reliable measurements of the key concepts? How do we even develop a better understanding, a common understanding of our key concepts? Yeah. You know, people will still argue until they're blue in the face about what we actually mean by the tragedy of the commons. Some people think it's great. Some people think it's horrible. Some, yeah. You know, property rights, you could have the same discussion. Yeah. Not to squash that, right? Because a lot of yeah. what leads to innovation is, you know, variation, diversity, and the ability to yeah. have, as Lynn modeled, like constructive conflict. Yeah. But, you know, finding a balance there involving both of those things. Like, how do we get together and disagree with each other productively but have more consistent ways of doing our work yeah and the other i would challenge each other yeah yeah and then i think we want to continue to be more um you know i think the technical word here is you know more transdisciplinary yeah engaging more with non-academic actors yeah um thinking about what type of knowledge we do want to collect and how, who who can use it what is it useful for etc yeah. i mean so i guess for me based on my own values mm. And you could argue that the, f- the first one is a pretty core scientific value, right? Like generating yeah. generalizable knowledge, yeah. generating it. Um, and so I think for that, the main barrier is actually like working together. Like how do, how do yeah. we like get together and develop common understandings? Yeah. Well, that's yeah. maybe that's, as you were talking yesterday, that's collaboration as opposed yeah. to cooperation or yeah. whatever, but yeah. something like that. Yeah. And the transdisciplinary stuff, I don't know, maybe that's also an issue of collaboration. Like how do we develop these boundary organizations or use ones that leverage ones that are already in existence to um, satisfy societal needs. And actually I think satisfy a psychological need that a lot of academics have is kind of un, unmet, which is to feel like you're contributing yeah. in that you're more part practical of something way. bigger. Yeah. You're part of something bigger. But you know, I, it, 
Yeah, I mean, that's that's a basic and very general rationale for working together. Right. Like accumulation of knowledge is a noble goal. I, th- I think for academics, that may be be enough. Yeah. But, but I feel like unless there is a clearly defined problem right. that we currently cannot solve, unless we pool resources, put our heads together, Right. And actually collect data in a different way so it's comparable across time, across space, right. et cetera, and, and organize our databases the way we meet and interact. We change yeah. that whole culture of academic collaboration. But I feel like we're we have a solution in search of a problem. And hmm. and, and I mean it's not like there aren't any problems. <laughs> Lots of right. problems, but I I feel like we do best when we have a clearly defined problem we understand it we've analyzed it like deforestation is that what you're... yeah yeah like, okay. like, yeah so it may maybe it's sector based or maybe it's policy framing or policy choice so instrument right. or but something concrete that bring people to people see that that is a problem i don't have a solution right i couldn't solve this problem by myself yeah so now i'm motivated if i really care about addressing this problem mm-hmm. and I realize I can't do it by myself what do I do oh there are other like-minded they're all e- equally conflicted they have different approaches and we disagree on a lot of things but they're smart people and they want to pursue our goals are compatible we both care about this problem right so maybe now we can base our interactions you know we can we can kind of focus on that problem and that's that's kind of the point of departure we discuss that problem and how we view it. And then mm. from there, yeah, maybe there are room for collaboration, teamwork. Maybe we can really knock this off together. If you enjoyed this episode of the Finding Sustainability podcast, please feel free to share it with friends, colleagues, and on social media. You can find us on Twitter at find underscore sust underscore pod. Or you can visit our website, www.essnetwork.net forward slash podcast. On the website, you will find a content and guest request form. Here we invite you to submit recommendations for content and guests you would like to hear on the podcast. The podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher, and can also be streamed from our website. This podcast is part of the Environmental Social Science Network. For more information about the network and how to get involved, please visit our website, www.essnetwork.net. Thank you for supporting the podcast.